Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Dinosaurs get the brontosaurus' share of attention, from museum visitors and historians alike. But in his brilliant new book, Chris Manius sets the record straight and shows that, among 19th century paleontologists at least, mammals were where it's at. Deeply researched and beautifully written, the age of mammals is absolutely brimming with fresh insights and novel interpretations. Scientists invested mammals with special significance because their evolution was understood to presage the development of our own species. For that reason, naturalists used these creatures to teach object lessons about evolutionary advancement and biological hierarchy. As a result, mammalian fossils helped to naturalize Europe's imperial project, providing an ideological foundation to justify colonial expansion and indigenous dispossession. In turn, paleontologists materially benefited from imperialism as well, because new species were typically unearthed as part of a broader project of colonial resource extraction that centered on mining, especially the excavation of so-called fossil fuels, whose combustion unleashed the energy that powered the 19th century explosion of industrial capitalism. In addition to demonstrating how knowledge about the history of mammalian evolution emerged from the entanglement between science and empire, this book is also a pleasure to read, taking readers on a wide-ranging tour through the history of the earth sciences that spans several centuries and covers large parts of the entire globe. I simply can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, welcome to the podcast, Chris, and congratulations on the publication of your new book and long-awaited book, I should say, The Age of Mammals. Thanks, Luke. I'm very happy, very excited to be here. Uh, so let's start at the beginning and just ask why mammals. What made you choose to write a book about the history of mammalian paleontology? Well, it came off a very long trajectory of work and research I was doing. So in terms of my kind of initial formation as a historian, my the work coming off my PhD research was engaged with the development of a range of scholarly disciplines over the course of the 19th century in Britain, France, and Germany. So namely comparative linguistics, archaeology, and anthropology, and dealing with questions about how scholars and scientists in these three national communities thought about and interacted to create their own ideas of national origins, particularly framed by notions of race, progress, and um, sort of what what was conceptualized at the time as being natural development. So that was my kind of initial um, scholarly kind of training. Um, But as I moved on beyond my PhD research, I became more and more interested both in larger geographic contexts, so thinking beyond just the British, French, German um, kind of triad that I initially kind of trained as a historian of. Um, and also thinking about deeper um, aspects of the past. 
So I became very, very interested while I was actually doing my PhD research in ideas of human prehistory and kind of Stone Age humans and how these become conceptualized and understood as a research problem. And that led me into kind of thinking about human evolution as a very kind of interesting field. So I was kind of going backwards in time in terms of the area of kind of being received by my historical actors. Um, but my interest in the history of paleontology really came off what was my second research postdoc, like many academics, so quite a migratory um, early, early kind of academic career, moving between different areas. And this was um, joining a research project on comparative histories of colonialism in early, well, late 19th and early 20th century China. So geographically quite away from um, my kind of um, initial research area. Um, and I became very, very interested in a series of Western scientific projects and expeditions occurring in China in the 1920s and 1930s, which were very much connected with paleontology and ideas of deep time. So I was really, really excited within this project, on the one hand, to kind of continue in with my kind of interests in human prehistory and human evolution, because obviously you have things like the, well, the Peking Man excavations at Chokokian and various other sorts of fields and things like that. And, you know, the Central Asiatic expeditions of the American Museum of, of Natural History. Um, so I was very, very interested to be following these, um, but also very excited and very kind of enthusiastic to be looking at paleontology and kind of fossils and things like that. Because like, um, as a kind of deep origin story, um, like many kind of young people. I was very, very interested in dinosaurs, prehistoric animals as a child, but then it sort of disappeared. Um, but then this sort of um, can, combined with my kind of academic interest, and this actually turned into a really, really interesting scholarly field, thinking about how deep time is constructed, how non-human pasts are sort of made. And I assumed from doing this project, looking at the history of paleontology, that it would all be about dinosaurs and that sort of thing, because that's what most of the prior literature was engaging with. And that was just my basic assumption of what would be there. But as I went more and more into reading the historical material, primary sources, and what my actors were interested in, then dinosaurs were actually surprisingly marginal to their interests. And it was very much all about mammals and um, the creatures which 19th and early 20th century scholars thought of as being like humans in, to, in, in, to, to, in, in, that, in their sort of conceptualization. And that kind of just led me thinking, like, firstly, why are they interested in metals? Like, what is kind of driving them towards this? And secondly, why have historians not really paid much attention to this? What is a very, very strong mammal emphasis in the deep time sciences? And how has that affected the way in which we've understood the deep time sciences in terms of their public and political role and in terms of where they're done and by whom they're done? Yeah, thank you. I had no idea that you were part of a whole research project on imperialism in China. I mean, of course, I've read uh, your articles on... Tire de Chardin and other, you know, like you were talking about those Western expeditions to China, but that's really interesting. That helps me understand a little bit, actually, because I, I, I noticed that you seem to know a lot about Chinese history in this period. And it's like, that's interesting to hear that that was a, a, a whole research project you were part of. Um, and I should just full disclosure for people who don't know, I've, I've actually written quite a lot about dinosaurs myself and um, should say that, like, yeah, but you're absolutely right. Um, that although historians have paid a lot of attention to dinosaurs, I too, when I was doing research on the history of dinosaurs, was constantly having to like wade through all this work on mammals. And it was actually sometimes quite difficult to find the dinosaurs um, in, in, all of, in this kind of sea of mammalian paleontology. 
Um, and so I'm wondering, do you, do you have any, if you, if you care to elaborate on that? Because like, so you're 100% right. Mammals are where it's at. Like mammals are what the paleontologists were primarily interested in. And, but the historians, you know, you're obviously um, charting new ground here, but um, have traditionally been much more interested in dinosaurs, not completely to the exclusion of mammals, but certainly the emphasis has been on dinosaurs. So I'm just curious if you if you want to elaborate a little bit on that. And so, I just would love to hear you speak a little bit more about why you think that is, like why this obsession with dinosaurs? Is it because in popular culture we're so obsessed with dinosaurs or what's going on there? And why have people not been paying more attention to mammals, given the fact that, as you say, that's what the paleontologists were primarily doing? Yeah, and I, I think it's exactly that. Like, um, if you look at the public presentation of um, paleontology um, today, whether it's in the media um, or in sort of um, broadcasting or podcasting and so on, then it always veers towards dinosaurs as just the, the icons of prehistory and the icons of deep time and paleontology. And this is very much something within our culture and i think this just kind of feeds into the kind of questions that historians and and historians of science engaging with these things um have followed um and just assuming that because dinosaurs are so prominent and dinosaurs are so widespread today then they always have been and of course if you look through the history of paleontology and it's kind of public dimension there have been these periodic waves of what might have termed kind of dinomania so around the 1850s, you get one um, with the Crystal Palace dinosaurs, which incidentally also include a fairly large number of mammal sculptures alongside the reptiles. Um, but you have um, yeah, very strong interest in dinosaurs then. Around the 1900s, then you have huge interest in particularly sauropod dinosaurs um, being excavated in the kind of newly kind of occupied territories in the American West. Um, and then um, more recently, from about the yeah, 1990s onwards, then you have another sort of wave associated with big media like Jurassic Park and so on. So you get these kind of periodic waves of interest in dinosaurs, but within the kind of broader history of paleontology, their interests have been much, much more diverse. But this is something which I think even academics interested in these fields haven't really historicized and haven't thought about as much as they potentially um, ought to have done. Because, yeah, as, as, as you sort of said, um, the history of the deep time sciences are either orientates towards a paleontology-focused literature, focusing on dinosaurs, or a broader kind of conceptions of deep time and geology and the broad questions about the Earth being given a historical sort of framework, much growing off, either drawing off or sort of developing Mark and Roderick's work and other, other people like that. So these are the kind of strands which have gone. But then whole ra whole ranges of fields of the reception of deep time sort of, of deep time have been very very um, sort of uh, yet yeah, minimally engaged with. So my book is engaging with mammals, which um, I think are hugely hugely important, not just within the nineteenth century framework that I'm tracing, but you know well into the twentieth century. But then there's very, very little on the history of invertebrate paleontology, which I think would be a hugely important um, field for someone to kind of look at, or probably many people to look at, because it's a hugely complex field with lots of deep relations with ideas of evolution, development, but also economic processes. Um, nothing really on fossil fish, for example, um, which I which are huge, again, huge, huge area of study, but again, not very much looked at. And also... There's a bit developing now, um, but not quite so much, but also fossil plants and thinking about paleobotany and ideas about plant evolution and development, which on the one hand has important implications for understanding of, uh, understandings about nature and 
and, and sort of wider things around that. But also, if we're thinking about 19th and 20th century economies, is really, really deeply implicated within the move to fossil fuels and, and coal and oil in particular. So yes, there are these lots of different areas, which I think the history of paleontology and history of the deep time sciences are really well placed to look at in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're uh, preaching to the choir here, speaking to me. And, you know, invertebrate paleontology, I've, I've also, I've talked a lot to David Sapkowski about his frustration that everyone, you know, forget about dinosaurs. Everyone's interested in megafauna, basically. Um, and... Uh, but often, um, a lot of the most interesting theoretical debates happening in the history of paleontology have been around uh, invertebrate paleontology, especially the use of different kinds of statistical techniques to um, try to quantify the fossil record. So, of course, the kind of thing that David Sapkowski's dad, Jack Sapkowski, was doing, creating kind of diversity curves and other sorts of things like that over the course of the history of life on Earth, which is super, super interesting stuff. Anyway, but leaving that to one side... Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, um, so my first question was about, um, you know, the topic of your book, the history of mammalian paleontology. And now I wanted to ask a question also about the process of researching this book. And in particular, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I was very interested, I've, I've kind of watched, you know, I've engaged with you a lot as you've been uh, working up this uh, important and impressive project and been really interested to see the kind of collaborative way that you have developed, um, uh, the kind of collaborative research practice that you've developed, which involved the creation of a, a network on popularizing paleontology, where you've really helped to kind of foster, helped to kind of foster the kind of conversation that you're just describing that you wish there was more of happening among a whole range of practitioners, including working, you know, practicing paleontologists as well as historians and um, paleo artists and lots of other people. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that network and what made you decide to, to do that kind of work and how that fed into the research for this new book that's just coming out. Yeah, um, well, obviously, in, within within the humanities, then traditionally, there's been a stereotype that humanities scholars, um, almost by definition, um, sit and kind of produce things by themselves, which is obviously kind of completely wrong. Like every kind of academic uh, production is uh, is yeah is the results of a whole range of interactions and collaborations and so on. Um, but I was really, really struck by a range of different things within. A whole range of different communities that I was operating within. I was seeing that within the community of history, historians um, of science and SDS scholars, there was huge interest, huge turning towards both histories of the deep time sciences, but also questions around how science and scientific ideas move and are entangled with wider public and wider kind of cultural forms. So this is obviously something that I'm very kind of familiar with and something that I almost intuitively expect as a historian of science. But as I was developing um, this project, um, I firstly thought that I did actually need to understand a fair amount of the science around paleontology to actually just understand what my actors were doing, what they were talking about. Because if you go through a uh, 19th century work of paleontology, there'll be a huge amount of very, very technical um, material around sort of comparative anatomy, around um, evolutionary phylogenies and so on. And just working that out can be very kind of tricky. Um, and so keeping keeping abreast at how currently people are kind of engaging with that, with that I thought was um, very, very useful just to sort of work out the kind of techniques which were involved. But as I was doing that, and as I was interacting with, with paleontologists, and I, I, I noticed that they didn't conform to the stereotype that historians, historians of science can sometimes have of scientists that they kind of think in completely progressivist terms about their field, and they're very kind of 
unhistorical about the development of their um, discipline and don't think about being connected with culture. Because I was finding speaking to paleontologists, reading paleontological work, um, both academic stuff and also more outward-facing paleontological work, that many paleontologists were kind of really interested in the history of their discipline in a very sophisticated kind of way. And we're also constantly reflecting on how paleontology has been entangled within public and wider cultural debates, or basically since its inception, and how that's affected the development of the field and what paleontologists have been interested in. But they were doing this in a manner which was completely disconnected with the debates going on in the history of science, in the history of science, in SDS, and in the English literature. Um, sort of feels also interested in the kind of um, science and literature approaches, which have been which has been a huge set of developments over the past couple of decades. So I, I, I just thought experimentally, how about we just get some uh, reflective paleontologists and paleo artists and science communicators together in a room with some um, SDS and English lit people interested in their field and, and just see what happens. And we had a meeting which was supported by my university, so very, very lucky to get some funding for that. And it went really, really well, surprisingly. And um, we had really productive um, collaborations, really, really productive discussions. And it was in very interesting and very gratifying for me, both because we managed to kind of overcome the problem within kind of cross-disciplinary issues of just trying to work out work out a common language and how to talk across um, different academic fields, because both the paleontologists and the historians of science were both kind of used to speaking to audiences beyond their kind of technical area of specialism. So they could kind of approach things that way. But also, I think the thing which historians and humanities people often fear about when interacting with scientists about the scientists claiming a particular level of epistemic authority or sort of power above the um, humanities scholars that didn't seem to manifest in quite the same in, in quite the way which um you might stereotypically think would happen where the amount of authority and power which is given to scientists in our society is very often much much sort of larger than that which is given to kind of humanities academics but within th this set of interactions this didn't happen and um it was very much kind of meeting on terms of um yeah on equality with some kind of uh, mis, uh, mis hearings along the way, but nothing that can be sort of, uh, yeah, in, uh, kind of surmounted in a, in a kind of productive manner. Um, so um, I developed this network and it really has kind of continued since then. So we're now in about the seventh or eighth year of running this. So we had a series of um, physical workshops, um, the three or four years um, after the first one, and we've now carried on as a, um, as a kind of online series of meetings, which we set up during the pandemic as a way of keeping in touch and keeping ourselves sort of sane, as many kind of people did during those years. But then that sort of carried on as kind of, yeah, as a collaborative thing where we meet relatively regularly, um, talk about our work, talk about shared interests, and are also kind of planning some new projects based on that now. But that's been really, really important and really helped feed into the book and feed into the process because it means that, um, yeah, that I have another audience and another kind of set of collaborators who can really feed into my research, into um, the things I'm thinking about, um, and can give a sort of second, um, can, can also kind of give a second opinion on sort of what I'm doing, but can also um, kind of help as an additional audience. So I'm very kind of keen for this book in particular for it to be on the one hand, have an audience of um, history of science and STS scholars, but also for it to be something that could be productively read by paleontologists. Yeah, excellent. Um, and I had the um, good fortune of participating in some of those online meetings, and I can say that they have been, yeah, it's a it's a particularly both 
lively, but also very, very friendly group. So it's a really nice uh, network that you've put together. So that's a real service too, as well, to the community. Uh, so thanks for that. I wanted to ask you a little bit, another kind of, um, maybe in some ways methodological question, um, which is that one thing that I find really interesting about, uh, you know, when I was reading your book is to see its ambitious transnational scope. Uh, so I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what made you decide to write a global history of Mendelian paleontology. So rather than, you know, you were saying in your earlier work, focusing primarily on Europe, France, Germany, and the UK, what made you decide that for this project, you really wanted to take a much broader angle view of the topic? Um, yeah, well, as I kind of mentioned, as I just alluded to, I, I was part of a generation or part of a cohort of historians that was really trained and initially developed with the conceptualization of being a transnational historian. So someone who wasn't necessarily confined within particular national boundaries, but thought about uh, yeah, connections, um, rivalries, movements across and between different frontiers, different sort of boundaries, and different contexts. And there was, um, this is obviously a kind of historical project that's developed at various different times, but there was a particular um, yeah, European-focused um, field of transnational history that developed in the 1990s and early 20s uh, and, and uh, early 2000s that very much thought about kind of going beyond the nation-state as a way of um, conceptualizing links between different European countries, but also questioning and thinking about questions like, well, nationalism in particular, which was a large part of my initial book. Um, but also, um, yeah, questions about kind of political change, um, political exchange, um, cultural exchange, and intellectual exchange. So the kind of transnational and cross-boundary kind of methodology is just something which um, I've been trained as. It comes very naturally to me, and it's almost an intuitive thing for me to do, to think about how things are moving, how, and also how things are kind of differing and connecting across different national contexts. Um, within this particular project, um, the uh, the wider, more international scope really developed out of the context of the debates and issues um, within the field of mammalian paleontology in the 19th century. So it's more affected by that um, kind of boundary rather than any kind of um, yeah, geographic one. Um, obviously, if you're talking about the history of paleontology in the 19th century, then you can't leave out the United States because it just develops as such a hugely important um, yeah, center of paleontological work um, over the course of the 19th century, with paleontology being one of the first sciences where United States scholars um, consider themselves to not to be kind of superior to European ones in many kind of major ways. Um, but then there's also, of course, the issue that paleontology develops as very much a subject which is closely connected with European expansion in both a in directly imperial way, but also in an economic way through the expansion of infrastructures based on mining, agriculture, um, road and canal building, um, kind of urban construction and things like that. And so within that, um, you again, you can't talk about paleontology in the 19th century without bringing in this um, colonial dimension, at least, whether we're talking about expansion of settler colonial systems in places like Australia um, and South Africa, um, more kind of formal imperial structures, um, which I trace in the book in the context of India and um, Egypt, 
but also very much in what um, historians of the British Empire call inf informal empire. So areas which are subordinated to imperial influence, but without formal annexation or without um, formal um, colonial acquisition. So the kind of classic examples of this would be uh, British influence within China in the 19th century or South America in the 19th century to um, South America features in the book, but China doesn't um, so extensively. So it follows a series of case studies um, based on this. Um, one thing is I was incredibly fortunate as well when I was developing this project to be given a grant by one of our research funders in the UK, so the, the British Academy, which gave me funding to visit archives in the United States, South Africa, and Australia. And the project wouldn't have the same, um, yeah, the same kind of composition if I hadn't got that. So I was really, really fortunate. I'm incredibly kind of grateful, incredibly feel incredibly sort of privileged to have sort of had, had, had that. Um, uh, but also, of course, um, there are particular areas of the world where because of my own sort of linguistic sort of limitations, I couldn't look at. So that's part of the reason why China isn't sort of formally there. Um, but another area that'd be hugely interesting and hugely important for someone to look at would be the history of um, these developments within um, the Russian imperial territories within this period, because there's a lot happening there. There's an introductory vignette or introductory case study in one of the in the first chapter in the book. Um, on a particularly important frozen mammoth that's found in north northeastern Siberia um, in the turn of the uh, around the turn of the 1800s. Um, but there's so much more to be done there that I think it's a really really important project for someone to work on. Yeah, absolutely, especially in Central Asia. Um, I couldn't agree more. Um, <laughs> I, I, let's stick to this theme of science and empire a little bit more. Um, and uh, yeah, I was really interested to hear you speaking about the way that the history of paleontology is bound up with the history of what you might call kind of natural resource intelligence gathering, something like that, sort of uh, figuring out um, where to extract uh, economically valuable mineral resources, for example, fossil fuels, perhaps chief among them, but um, all kinds of other uh, resources as well. And so I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more specifically or precisely about what it is that mammals, the history of mammalian paleontology in particular, can teach us about this, you know, vexing but very fruitful connection between science and imperialism. Yeah, um, one of the um, important sort of things about mammal paleontology as it develops in the 19th century in terms of these questions about, um, yeah, resource extraction and so on, is it's conducted on a very kind of large geographic scale. And this is partly down to simply the wide extent of mammal fossils around the world um, being found in many, many formations in kind of in sort of usable states of preservation than dinosaur fossils, for example, and often more complete than the kind of fragmentary remains of dinosaurs, which means that um, pretty much anywhere that people are digging, not just in the 19th century, but sort of, um, yeah, all through history, that it's very, very common to find the remains of fossil mammals and to kind of put them within various different conceptual and various um, yeah, intellectual frameworks. The way that this operates in the 19th century is um, sometimes it's connected with um, directly the questions of resource extraction. So particularly for within kind of cave paleontology, so um, or kind of cave ex exploitation, so things like um, saltpeter and quicklime and things like that from Pleistocene caves. 
Um, and so in these contexts, then there's quite a strong resource-based um, connection. Um, but it's also very much based around mapping and um, and topography and fields like this. So in terms of geographic and geological surveys, um, which are conducted within many colonial systems throughout the 19th century, then quite often the um, geographic surveyors are going to be reporting also on mammalian fossils. So they're being sort of reported on within those sorts of frameworks. Um, but also even in the kind of um, systems around other economic sectors, then mammalian paleontology is being kind of is, is, is being kind of deeply entangled. So um, agriculture, for example, whether it's a plantation-based agriculture, arable agriculture, or pastoral agriculture, is very often being um, sort of driven onto um, places um, where, in, particularly within settler colonial systems, where the indigenous populations are expelled, and then people, sheep, um, and animals like that are sort of brought in. And then within that, um, then there's often quite a lot of searches for um, water, for grazing lands, um, and building sort of infrastructure around transport. And that will very frequently also lead to the location of mammalian fossils, which then draw the attention of paleontologists based often in large-scale collections. So on the one hand, the kind of connections between mammal paleontology and empire do have this quite strong material dimension. So the excavation, the location, and the exploitation of mammal fossils is happening um, as almost as a kind of additional product on top of the expansion of mineral agricultural and infrastructural sort of um, imperial kind of projects. But then, of course, if we're talking about mammals and conceptions of mammals, then it isn't just happening on the material level. It's also happening on the ideological and the cultural level, because throughout the 19th century and throughout 19th century imperial and scientific ideologies and animals are given a huge ranges of cultural values, which are associated with ideas of their development around the characters of particular climates, around the worth of particular organisms and particular things. And so through reflecting, through reflecting on fossil mammals and extinct mammals and connecting them with animals alive today, with landscapes and also with people who are being kind of also subjected to these various systems, then it becomes a way of intellectually conceptualizing imperial power structures and ideas of hierarchy, dominance, and um, all these other things associated with um, yeah, European and sort of Western expansion during the 19th century. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a sort of a follow-up question to that, which is, you know, in my reading of your of your really, you know, fantastically interesting book, um, I was just struck that part of what makes mammals such an interesting object of study is the outsized role that they played in the creation of a a kind of a triumphalist narrative of evolutionary progress that so many geologists in the late 19th and early 20th century were preoccupied, you know, spent so much of their lives writing. And so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, like how these ideas about evolutionary advancement were um, created a kind of, you might say, almost like an ideological infrastructure uh, to naturalize and therefore justify the, the Europe's imperial project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, one important thing to say is it's not is the idea about mammals being 
um, the kind of highest um, form of animal life and the form which is closest to humans. It's not necessarily just an evolutionary idea. It's very much entangled within um, non-evolutionary visions of the natural world developing um, during the early modern period. So there's a much sort of longer history within this. And one thing that I was very struck with um, when doing the research, when doing the writing, and a kind of underlying theme within the book is just how kind of knotty and impossible to displace the old ideas of the chain of being and kind of a natural hierarchy within um, within the sort of natural world um, is um, throughout the 19th century. It's really, really persistent and really um, and really sort of um, uh, entangled within all of these debates and all of these discourses. So um, mammals become really, really significant um, within thinking about hierarchies within the natural world or, and also various ideas of progress um, because of these ideas about them being the most superior form of animal, but also the animal which is simultaneously most similar to humans and um, possibly related to humans um, according to some naturalists but by no means all particularly within the very uh, within the early 19th and late 18th century context but also useful to humans in many in many extensive ways like 19th century writings on mammals are full of this incredibly uh yeah instrumentalizing um and utilitarian kind of interpretations about mammals being the most useful creatures for our economy um whether they're kind of horses or cattle or um sheep and so on um or also whether they're the animals which are being um killed in huge huge numbers um during the 19th century for various other extractive um and exploitative measures so obviously the kind of huge exploitation of whales um throughout the 19th century elephants for ivory and so on. Um, so mammals are conceptualized as, again, being very deeply entangled within both cultural politics, but also the economy within the 19th century. And in some aspects, this does feed into a triumphalist narrative and idea and really kind of bolstering ideas of progress and development um, within particular ideological formations with mammals being kind of put at the hierarchy and summit of life of being conceptualized as presaging particular human qualities um, and as potentially forming the um, the sort of lower stratum that then humans could then build their even more progressive society over, according to the ideas of the time. So they build on these ideas about progress and development. But one thing that I was also struck with is um, they also, reflecting on mammals and reflecting on their position within the natural world and reflecting on their history, also questions and causes particular problems and difficulties within ideas of progress and development. And that works on a number of different levels. The, 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 the first is um, 19th century scholars will often say that mammals are superior and they're kind of at the summit of animal life, but then often have quite a lot of difficulty in actually arranging the mammals themselves into a linear hierarchy within um, within, within, within the sort of group. Like there's a general assumption, as you probably expect, and as this has been put forward very, very strongly in a really great book by Jack Ashby recently called Platypus Mathis, that um, our, our, the Australian animals, particularly monotremes and marsupials, are positioned at the bottom, which obviously is a whole part of the othering and sort of naturalization of Australia as a place which is classed as being primitive and undeveloped within various imperial ideas ideologies 
Um, then there's an idea that a uh, group of creatures which is classed in the, in the 19th century as the edentates, so literally the toothless animals. And these are creatures which are associated particularly with South America and Africa and includes things like aardvarks, anteaters, giants, wasps, both giant and, um, and sort of extant. Um, as being another sort of low form. Um, there are also assumptions that primates, as you would probably expect, are at the top um, of the mammal hierarchy, and then elephants, for various kind of complicated cultural reasons, are always, again, given a status of being almost the ideal animals. But then beyond that, um, whether, say, bats are superior to cows, whether they're superior to kind of predators and so on and carnivores this is something which is really kind of open within the 19th century and means that um ideas of simply linear hierarchy don't necessarily work when constructing typologies of mammals and it becomes much more variegated and much more about understanding animals in terms of function and in terms of their position within what Victorian scholars would call um, often the often the, the economy of nature so kind of a, a not really an idea of ecology but an idea of kind of position and status so that's one kind of area where ideas of progress and linearity become questioned. Another larger area where they become questioned is whether the narrative of the history of life is really necessarily or necessarily all about progress and improvement, or whether important things have been lost along the way. One of the things I was really, really struck by throughout, throughout the book is when the um, 19th century paleontologists and various people drawing off paleontological ideas are reflecting and thinking about what they characterize as being the age of mammals, which is the sort of last period before the current era, um, which they will often call the age of man, um, in a very kind of gendered as well as kind of human-centered sort of manner. Um, they will um, often, well, they, they will say it's a kind of lower stage of development, but often there's a tremendous sense of loss and decline and worry that these dramatic and majestic creatures and the diversity and variety of animals um, has disappeared. Sometimes it's presented in a medium of real sort of tragedy, so this material has been lost and humans will never um, see it again. Sometimes it is again presented in these kind of more utilitarian manners, so um, quite often, particularly in the early 19th century actually, there's uh, many, many scholars do talk about how um, it's a kind of providential thing that things like mammoths and saber-toothed cats and cave bears and so on have disappeared because it means that humans can now have agriculture and um, settled life without being kind of subjected to these animal and animal competitors. Um, but quite often there is this idea that the kind of current era of human dominance has seen a huge amount of loss and decline and tragedy which is kind of drawing off and there's very and there's a huge kind of emotional engagement with it throughout the period so there's a degree of tri their, their triumphalism is definitely there but it's always tempered by these other um sort of thoughts and these other and, and these other kind of emotional registers yeah one thing i found in my own work on dinosaurs too is that there's often this um i found often this emphasis on the ferocity and violence of the world that has been lost. Um, again, as a, a way of sort of naturalizing and justifying what these imperial naturalists wanted to present as a more enlightened modernity. Of course, a, a, an incredibly ironic sort of narrative to tell, given the violence of empire and settler colonialism, perhaps in particular. Um, but 
so yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really that those connections, those ideological connections, I think are real. They run really, really deep, and they're incredibly fascinating. Um, the note that you end on is also very, very interesting. This preoccupation with degenerate, excuse me, degeneration and decline that is so pronounced. These anxieties about degeneration and decline that are so pronounced throughout the 19th century. So I wonder if, if you just if I could get you to talk a little bit more about uh, the specter of extinction that always. Um, you know, accompanies narratives of evolutionary progress. So how uh, ideas about evolution and ideas about extinction both um, were enmeshed or entangled with um, the politics of empire during the 19th century? Yeah, um, well, extinction is something which hangs over the book and over the themes in many important um, manners. Um, and this is in terms of um, sort of well, large megafauna no longer being around and their disappearance needing to be conceptualized, which is a major intellectual problem and also a major intellectual debate, obviously, in the latter part of the 18th and early part of the 19th century when ideas of extinction are sort of still um, kind of very much um, questioned in many centers. Um, but then there are different ways and, again, different registers in which extinction becomes understood and becomes mobilized and presented. One major issue or one major narrative, which is presented by lots of paleontologists in the um, 19th century and is importantly one thing that Cope and Marsh, the famous sort of American rivals, actually agree on very sort of um, strongly, is the idea that the main thing which is occurring within um, recent evolutionary and developmental history is um, the, main, the, the main sort of story is the growth of the brain and the growth of intelligence. And so while animals may have different physical forms and may adapt to various different um, lifestyles, the true progressive line is, is being kind of followed by animals which are getting more intelligent and more um, sort of able to sort of think and more able to kind of intellectually engage with their environment and with other animals, which is very often used as a basic explanation of why particular creatures went extinct um, and presenting a particular form of kind of moral kind of culpability on the animal for kind of wasting its evolutionary energies and basalism on developing um, sort of horns and protuberances rather than the true area which, which, which we thought would be the brain. Um, and so that's been followed by many, many scholars in the 19th century. But then um, when you particularly when you get to the latter part of the 19th century, the early 20th century, when there's um, tremendous reflection and tremendous sort of concern over the extinction of um, thing or, or the kind of um, assumed impending extinction of things like um, the American bison, or the thylacine, or the passenger pigeon, or the quagga, and so on. Um, these become bound up very, very strongly with paleontological ideas about these simply being the latest extinctions with a much longer line and with, with a lot, much, much longer history occurring over the course of the age of mammals. So, on the one hand, extinction is being presented as a natural process going deep into the past, um, but also something which is conceptualized as accelerating within the present. Um, one thing I was really, really interested or kind of surprised within a lot of the, particularly the late 19th century 
um, scholarship is when they're talking about the extinction of megafauna, so things like mammoths, um, uh, mastodons, um, woolly rhino, and so on, they're, they're often very, very reluctant to give humans a full kind of positive agency in causing these animals' extinction. Like, at most, um, a reference from, say, the, the paleontologist Henry Fairfield Osborne is that after a huge range of environmental crises and general declines, and humans appear as the destroying angel, the kind of complete, complete what kind of nature has started. Um, so that's very uh, so they, they they do have very very complex multi causal ideas about how extinction happens, which I think may feed into these um, or, or may kind of also draw off these idioms of kind of tragedy and almost kind of guilt coming off um, a lot of these discourses. Um, but then when they're talking about extinctions in the modern period um, and contemporary extinctions, then they're very adamant and very kind of clear that these are being caused by humans. They're being caused by the expansion of um, agricultural and, um, in, yeah, and, 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 and sort of imperial type systems. And whether this means that the kind of last vestiges of the wild should be kind of preserved through things like game reserves and things like that or whether just the future will be an impoverished world with only domesticated animals and with all the last representatives of the age of mammals being destroyed is something which is very unclear and is something which is, um, yet again, a subject to the huge amount of doubt and trepidation in this latter in, in, in these around 1900. Yeah, and of course, right, I mean, creating these game reserves, national parks, um, uh, it's kind of a doubling down of imperialism. It's like, Oh, it, perhaps empire is accelerating the rate of extinction. The solution is more empire. <laughs> it's, never, it's never less empire. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, um, just as a kind of final question before, I, I have two more questions, basically. But um, uh, the first one is to get you to reflect a little bit on the present. So to think about the Anthropocene. So, of course, we're in a moment now during which there, again, is a, a um, widespread anxieties about extinction and in this case, our own extinction, right? The extinction of our own species as well. Um, and whether you, I, I'm sometimes a little frustrated by popular, maybe journalistic, I don't know, conversations around the Anthropocene, which often um, uh, represents contemporary anxieties around extinction. It's very much as a very kind of late modern phenomenon, as a kind of break with the past. And so, I'm, whereas I, I personally, when I read, um, People reflecting on the Anthropocene, I, I hear a lot of echoes of these 19th century naturalists, especially someone like Henry Fairfield Osborne that you that you were just um, talking about. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. Like, how do you think about the current Anthropocene discourse and whether you see um, continuities with the history that you've written about here or, or just any kind of relationships between the work that you've done on this book, which is really focused, centered on the 19th century and the more recent uh, debates around uh, extinction, including anthropogenic uh, extinction. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, just um, following on from what you were alluding to, I think that current debates on the Anthropocene really do need to be historicized. And we do that we do it. And that does need to have a much greater awareness that this is not a new set of concerns and not a new set of developments. Like I think uh, Christophe Bonnet and Jean-Baptiste Frasso's recent book, um, The Shock of the Anthropocene, is very good at tracing some of the intellectual antecedents and um, disentangling a lot of this current discourse. But I think there still needs to be a lot more done within this area. But I was, yeah, very, very um, struck also while doing the research um, and while doing the writing of this book that, yeah, my historical actors in the 19th century um, have 
no sort of doubts that humans are acting almost like geological agents in a very similar sort of way. And that the new age and the new kind of epoch that they are living in um, is very much one which is defined by human power and human dominance. Um, they will tend to refer to it again, as I said earlier, as the age of man. So being very literal, being very sort of literal about it, and that following on from the age of mammals. So this kind of epochal transition there. Um, there's another important and quite interesting term, which is very present within um, U.S. discourses in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century of the period being called the Psychozoic, so the age of mental life. Um, and this is based on a kind of a sort of a kind of pointless or a kind of step change sort of manner that while previous eras of creation were about physical strengths and kind of brute force the current era is dominated by humans and so is based around um yeah intelligence and intellect and kind of intelligent control of the natural world um so lots of this i think does very much i think connect with um our current debates on the anthropocene and i think really does um yeah need to kind of feed into what we're currently concerned with because humans have been on trying to understand this in many kind of important ways um and the intellectual genealogies of things like the anthropocene you know you can draw links with these concepts of um psychozoic and the age of man which on the one hand can be good to think think with but on the other hand obviously do derive from these um imperial colonial contexts both intellectually and materially so we do need to kind of think about that as well yeah absolutely so just to end i wanted to ask you a bit, a bit about your own future so if there's anything that you're working on now or that you're thinking about working on next that you wanted to share with our listeners yeah sure um so i've got two major things which i'm currently working on um so the first is building on the popularizing paleontology network so we're building um and kind of developing a um edited collection which will um which will be uh, multi-authored with various different chapters about different aspects of um different fossil organisms within public discourse from the latter part of the 18th century up until the present and it will be about third about dinosaurs third about mammals instead about hominins we unfortunately couldn't get invertebrates in there but that will probably be in the second one um so we're working on that that should be out um in another couple of years and that'll be open access through UCL Press, so it will be kind of fully available for everyone um, when that's finally out. Um, another thing which I'm, what, what, what the, and the, the, the next kind of single also academic work that I want to kind of get working on is initially my plans for this project was to write a history of paleontology focusing on the 1870 to 1950 period so it was all um, but then various things happened within the research and writing pro process which meant that the mammal paleontology sections only focused on the 19th century but that does mean that I've been thinking about the early 20th century a lot and have quite a bit of archival material to write uh, another book um, in the international history of paleontology, uh, particularly gonna, it's going to particularly going to be focusing on the 1920s and 1930s and will be vertebrate paleontology in general. Um, but the question motivating this book um, really jumps off something that I mentioned briefly in the conclusion of the Age of Mammals, but really want to kind of get, 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 sort of get to grips with is how does paleontology, which is a subject which develops over the course of the 19th century, is fundamentally dependent on imperial connections and transnational connections, how do paleontologists then deal with, in an institutional, intellectual, cultural, and scientific way, with the various crises and destabilizations of the interwar period? So that's my kind of guided question, which I don't know the answer to yet, but hopefully I will um, in four or five years, or well, hopefully sooner, actually. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, me too. I, I can't wait to find out. So please, <laughs> please write the book because I, I would like to read it. Um, thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and uh, especially having a chance to read and engage with your work. It's, it's really fantastic. So congratulations again. Yeah, thanks for having me.